Welcome to The Sound of the Hound, a podcast about the early days of recorded sound. My name's James Hall. And I'm Dave Holly. And in this series, we look at the technology, the characters and the stories behind the invention of recorded music over 120 years ago. We trace the pioneers. The dreamers. The adventurers. Who risked life and limb in their quest to bring music to the masses. And who embarked on extraordinary feats of daring do in their mission to capture sound. These people ultimately changed the way that we listen and, incidentally, spawned a multi-billion pound industry in the process. Uh, Let's explain a bit about who we are. I'm James Hall. I'm a music journalist and author. And I'm Dave Holly, and I'm a long-time music industry exec. Uh, I used to run Abbey Road Studios, and I'm now a trustee of the EMI Archive Trust. I wouldn't consider either as particularly gramophone geeks or phonograph fanatics, no. But, but what we are is obsessed with this extraordinary period of time. Uh, our episodes will feature a range of characters, but one character you'll hear about again and again is a man called Fred Geisberg, who was effectively employee number one in the UK recording industry and opened Britain's first recording studio in Covent Garden in 1898. Yeah, he really was the maestro. Yeah, he was the Steve Jobs of Victorian London. The Simon Cowell with a handlebar moustache. <laughs> So why is this podcast called The Sound of the Hound? Because we're doing it with the help of the EMI Archive Trust, which is a vast uh, music and technology archive based in Hayes. The EMI Trust celebrates the history of recorded sound and the work of the famous EMI group of companies, which include the Foundation Company, the Gramophone Company, and also HMV, his master's voice. Which is why we've named the podcast The Sound of the Hound after Nipper, the dog in the famous HMV logo. This is The Sound of the Hound. Okay, we're off. This is the first podcast from The uh, Sound of the Hound, um, Hound. powered by EMI Archive Trust. I'm Dave Holly. Actually, we should probably introduce ourselves. Yeah, I'm I'm, um, Dave Holly. I used to run EMI's archives back in the day, and I also ran EMI's studio, so I got the pleasure of working at Abbey Road, but I also got the pleasure of working at Hayes, the EMI archives out there. And I'm currently a trustee of the EMI Archive Trust, as well as the Sound of the Hound. And you are? My name is James Hall. I'm a music journalist and an author. Um, I write for a national newspaper, we can say, can't we? Yeah. I'm one of the Telegraph's music writers. You, you did I the, do. Can, the uh, thing about how I, 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 I get the Telegraph, and, get and the yesterday there, there was a feature you on music, the music festivals, there and I, I seem to a name, but was James Hall by the side <laughs> of it, which I'm guessing is you. Yeah. Yes, top 50 music festivals. That yeah. was a, a labour of love, let's say. Um, and, and, you know, the, let's not forget your book, um, The Industry of Human Ki- Happiness, not Kindness, <laughs> The <laughs> Industry of Human Happiness by James Hall. Which came out in 2018, May 2018, and it's a story. It's a novel. It's a kind of thriller set at the um, or it's adventure a, story. It's a, it's more a, well, than it's a th- it's a thriller murder mystery. Yes. slash love story. Yes, it's set, all in there. Set at, set at the, in the 1890s in in London at the very beginning of the UK and at European the recording industry. Very dawn of the of the recorded music industry. Yeah. where yes, where our heroes battle it out um, over the future of recorded music. Really. Yeah, and, and many other things. So yes, that's me, and I, I have a huge fascination, as Dave just uh, suggested, with perhaps almost an obsession with these early days of recorded sound, and how it happened, and uh, how it took off extraordinarily in a world in a world that that, that wasn't really used to, uh, wasn't ready for it. It just kind of it was, it was sort of 
mutating into the 20th century, yes. wasn't it? The, the, yeah, London, the world was on the cusp of, of great change, not all of it good. Yeah, these inventions came along and, and, and fundamentally altered the way you know entertainment happened, I guess. I guess because photography had been invented a bit before that, 1840s, something like that. Yes, which is why I imagine the Impressionists started with the dots. Yeah. Because they had to find, you know, there, there was no longer any point in doing naturalistic paintings because no. you could now... So, yeah, there's more, more displacement due to but technology. But, but what, you, what you then can do is capture a moment. Yeah. And then after that, they, they 1860s, 1870s, they begin moving pictures, not really film, but fit, that give the appearance of, again, capturing something capturing. that's happened. And then in the, well, somewhere between the 1850s and the 1870s, yes. they, they develop ways of capturing, capturing sound. sound. Capturing sound. Yeah. It's such a weird concept, isn't it? And we're so used to it now, but before that, it was, it was uncontainable. You, it, 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 it was there and gone. It, it, you had well, to... What, what would you capture and why? Yes, yes. Capture sound. Um, there, there are two or three people who were very important and, and pursuing different areas of the science of recorded sound, but the, the guy who's most famous for it is Thomas Edison, yeah. who invented a way of recording and playing back sound, 1877, yes. I think. We mustn't forget Charles Cross, who he was had the idea. He was French. He had the idea just before Edison, and he wrote a paper on it. I, th- I think they would... T- you, you kind of hear of these two people inventing the same thing. The same thing. Not too far away from... One, one's in France. Of course was Charles in France. And, and he submitted a paper yeah. to the Parisian Academy about how to do it. Yeah. And I think it got lost in the internal mail or something. But And never made the prototype. He never, no, he never did it. He thought, he thought about how... He took a telephone and took it one step further. If, you can, if sound can travel down a wire between two, then surely there's a way of capturing it. That was his... Anyway, he didn't do it and Edison did. Edison patented it in the America mm-hmm. a few weeks after. Is it Cross or Crow? Oh, oh, ah, you see, cool. I, I think Charles Crow, but but maybe it's Charles Charles Cross. Cross. I don't know. No, I mean I very know. very English. Um, Charles Crow, very continental, me see. But so over in Edison, but Edison then listed a number of things that it might be used for, and they really didn't know as a dictation machine for for um, uh, for, for office bosses work and, for yeah. office work as a way of comedy uh, as a way of recording last wills and testaments yes. these are all these are all listed yes. in the patent and down at the bottom was music <laughs> recorded music who, who that can't possibly work can yeah, it yes that's, it's an afterthought music yeah. no this will never but from from the telephone came this idea mm. from one thing came the other yeah like, i guess it then sent a bit of a frenzy 1877 he sets it aside for a period of time and goes off and literally invents the light bulb. <laughs> That's what he goes and does. That little thing. That thing. And then w- people start wading in this water and coming up with different technologies. And one of them is a guy who's, who's probably not lost hero, really, Emil Berliner. Yes, um, the who, unsung. Yeah. Well, Berliner came up with the, the flat disc, didn't he? Yeah. Because Edison was the phonograph. Yeah, so the phonograph is... It, it rotates... It's a cylinder. Like, yes, it's a cylinder. Like a, well, so it's like a sort of a rabbit on a spit, as I yeah. put it. Sort of, yes, whereas... And it, it, the, the sound quality was okay, but not, not great. Not Berliner great. was the one who thought, right, let's, let's change the system. And I, th- I think the phonographs, they, they could initially only record one-on-one. Yes. And then one-on-three was the big step forward. So, so you had... One performance could get captured on three phonographs. And that was so, it. So if you wanted a bestseller of, say... 30, you had to get 30 dis, uh, cylinders to be sold. 
you had to do 10 performances. 10 performances. Yeah, so they were never the imagine same. Imagine that. Imagine Michael Jackson yeah. Thriller. <laughs> right. However many three, millions three. of times, yeah. Um, but, but the great thing about the um, disc was not, not only was it better sound quality, but it was uh, it, you were able to create a master and stamp out. Yes, you could reproduce it many, many. Unlimited, well, I'm sure there was a limit, but many, times. many thousands of times. But also, didn't the, didn't the, the needle move in a different way? Uh, on, on, on a phonograph, it was it was it was sort of called hill and valley, wasn't yeah. it? So it went up and it went up and down away from the surface. That's right. Yeah. Whereas on a on on, on the gramophone disc, it was it was laterally, so it moved from side to side. And you and and I guess gravity. Well, gravity would work on both of them, wouldn't it? But it would work, it'd be a lot stronger exactly, putting it a lot down stronger. onto a disc. Yes. So that the gro- yes, the groove was, was was side to side rather than up and down, which apparently made a huge difference. Yeah, to, to the sound quality. To the sound quality, yeah. yeah. This is the sound of the hound. So, I guess today we, we just want to talk about one person arriving in this country. And he, he actually worked for both Edison, or at least companies controlled by Edison. He was a, a pianist, I think, originally, and accompanied people making recordings, making recordings and then he, he jumped ship when he heard the technology that Berliner had um, put together and he went and worked for him. His name? Fred Geisberg. Fred I don't know why Geisberg. I said it. Fred Geisberg. Yes. What a man. So uh, who was he? Wait, wait, wait. he he's, he's American. He's American. His family were of Bavarian extraction. His, his grandfather moved from Bavaria to America in 1854. They emigrated and his grandfather was a bookbinder by profession, as was Fred's father, uh, Wilhelm, and his mother was, um, she was a music lover. She instilled mm. in him this, this love of music and I think bought a piano or insisted that Wilhelm got a piano in and Fred learnt the piano that way. Very young. Wasn't Very he? young. He was, yes. So thinking back, he, I think he'd started accompanying people at Edison in his teens, 16, 17, yes, no, 18. I, I, yes, I think you're right. Yeah. In the very early days, I mean, this was before there was an industry. You couldn't call it a, a music industry then, could you? It was t- technologies, and I think they were looking for a purpose. Well, you know, music was one of the things that Edison was exploring. Yeah, I think they'd begun selling some, but 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 I think they were. It was more machines got rented out um, that to to went on travelling round round America as part of a circus, and people could listen to yes, yes, recordings. Yes, to, to sort of comedy skits. So people didn't own gra- uh, a phonogram at home at that point, and, and they, they certainly didn't buy cylinders to play. But yeah. you could, they looked like, they all, all, all the pictures I've seen, they had long white leads, and they put them in their ears, and it looked like the yes. Apple, um, you know, the white buds that you yes, get exactly, from Apple. Yes, yeah, exactly, massive versions yeah, of them. Yeah, big, yes. fat ones, yeah, yes. proper ones. Um, yeah, so it was almost like a technology in search of a, of a function, really, wasn't yeah. it? But then one of the artists, guy, a guy called Billy Golden, who I think Fred was recording, asked him if he wanted to meet this funny German chap yep. who, who'd invented the, as you said, the, the kind of rival, rival technology. And that was, that was Emil Berliner, Emil Berliner. Emil Berliner, yeah. And Fred was, was I think, about 20 at that point. And they, they spent a period of time raising money because this was a startup. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, set, he set up a company called the... North American Gramophone Company. It could be the United States Gramophone <laughs> Company. I'm not 100% sure of that, but it was an American company that, that he then raised some money so that he could hire pi- people in to, um, to promote his product. To promote. 
to make content for the product and and also so he could spend some time improving the product improving the discs improving the um the hardware it was originally a wind-up machine so that when the longer you played the slower it got and fred was actually instrumental at, at putting him in touch with i think it's eldridge johnson who 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 made engines for uh for sewing machines and he he they between them they worked out how to put an engine Johnson did into inside the gramophone. a gramophone, and it made it an automatic. So that that you therefore had constant speed, which of, of course is crucially important. Yes, when you, yes. Unless you the slower want. it goes, the deeper it gets. Yeah. And Fr- Fred, I think, threw himself into into that world. He helped find investors that brought money into Berliner's Vista. And I suppose Bista. if you've got a, if you've got an inquiring mind and you love music and you believe you're at the forefront of something, yeah, you are. You're going to throw yourself into it, aren't you? It must have been very yes. exciting. Fred started making um, recordings for Berliner, and and it, and it was so successful they actually made the world's first recording studio, which was in in Philadelphia. They opened a shop in Philadelphia. It was, wasn't it? It, um, was, um, it was above a shoe shop. Above it? a shoe shop, yes, and. At the same time as Berliner was pushing his business in America, he wanted to set up a distribution company in Europe. And this is really the reason Fred ended up arriving in the UK. Arriving in London. In, I think, 1898. The summer of 1898. Yeah. And do you want to talk about the background to that? Well, he'd... So Fred was was the young protégé and... Berliner felt it's time to, as you say, open up in Europe. So Fred went over to, I think there were already investors over there. There was this chap called William, um, William Owen, who had put a bit of money in. No, I, think, I, think, I think he went over to represent Berliner that in the UK. It. And he, he pulled together a bunch of lawyers. That was it. So it was William Barrett. He pulled together a bunch of lawyers. It was Trevor Williams, I think, who then went on to become chair of the gramophone company. that's absolutely correct and he yes he put some seed yeah. capital in in modern parlance yeah. and uh, not much not a huge amount no. and off they went and I, th- I think i think um the initial deal that william owen was it william barry owen? it was william barry owen that's right he he was looking for somebody to purely take distribution so they'd make the discs in america and they'd make the gramophones in america and they'd ship them over and they'd simply distribute and they'd resell and distribute yeah. them in europe and um they said, uh, thank you, but no, we, we, we want to make recordings ourselves because Europe's a different market. Europe's many different markets, yeah. and America's one big market, yeah. not necessarily going to work. So they wanted a recording specialist sent over. And probably the world's expert at recording in those days was a 25-year-old 25, yeah, so who'd set up the world's first recording studio in Philly, and um, he got dispatched across to to the UK but the work they had to do then just to get a recording you, once the once the the zinc master had been scratched by the cutting stylus mm. you have to take the disc out and dip it in acid to melt the beeswax coating i mean this wasn't simply him fred just sort of um, choosing an artist with promise and 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 recording them and this was a highly technical and actually Quite dangerous sounding job, wasn't it? Yeah, it wouldn't pass health and safety. It now, certainly wouldn't. wouldn't. You'd dip that zinc disc in in a in a vat of acid. I mean, yeah. watch your eyes, watch your fingers, <laughs> watch your yeah. eyes. Yeah, maybe wear gloves. And yes, so he, yes, so he transported this entire way of doing things over to. But over the, to London. The, he, he, one of the great things about Geisberg was that he wrote things down. So he. He he wrote a diary for 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 the many of the early years, which and then he wrote some memoirs towards the end of his life. So you get an awful lot of richness of, of what it was like at doing this 
by reading those things. There's an awful lot of richness. Yeah. They, um, they, they, they went from New York. I, I went f- as if to say flew. They cruised, they sailed from New York to Liverpool on a, on a Cunard liner called the Umbria. But even before he left New York, there seemed to, he had a bit of a sort of jolly, didn't he? This was yeah. a major lifestyle change for Fred. He met up with his, uh, with his, uh, with his uncle John and his aunt Anna, and they, um, he went to the top of the World Building, which I believe at the time was the tallest building in New York. It was. It was yeah. a precursor to the, to the Empire State, 20 stories high. It was, it was owned by a newspaper. There you the, go. Uh, the New York World, <laughs> and they, they called it the World Building. It's very Superman. And then they went for a Chinese meal. Yeah, in, Mott Street, in, right, which is still the centre of Chinatown in New York. Um, yeah, real sense that he was off on a huge adventure. Um, and how long, was the, how long was the voyage? How long was the, the crossing? It was sort of, it must have been a week or so, mustn't it? And there's no actual 100% evidence of this. I, I went and looked up record crossing by the Umbria, <laughs> and I think there, the record time it ever crossed was 14, uh, 13 days. Okay, so right. I'm assuming it was a couple of weeks. Um, so he left towards the end of July and en- ended up arriving right at the beginning of August. Right at the beginning of August. Yeah. And according to his diary, his baggage consisted of, and this is a, a direct quote, of a complete recording outfit. Now, that, I mean, that includes bell jars of acid, I, I, I assume, and, and, et- and etching styluses and zinc discs. And, I mean, it's a huge amount of equipment. And, and the, hor- they, they and the horns. They used to record the into a, horns. a big wooden horn that was, was very, very sizable. And that was, that was your, your, your microphone. Yeah. And you had to stand right next tapered, to it. Tapered. Tapered very thinly at one end. Yeah. With a kind of a sort of diaphragm with the cutting yep. stylus attached. Yeah. And it was under this that the, 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 zinc, the zinc disc rotated to capture the movement. Absolutely. It was as simple yeah, as that, yeah, yeah. wasn't it? Extraordinary. Yeah. He had a, so as well as this, he had a $25 bicycle with pneumatic tyres. I, I wondered what the significance of pneumatic tyres... I, I think was... they were new. I couldn't even say the word. Yeah. They were so new, I couldn't say the word. They, I think before then, the tyres were just thick rubber, yeah. presumably. So well, the I, idea I, I pumping... Googled that again, and it, I think it was Dunlop, a chap... Dunlop. Scottish chap who invented it yes. didn't make a farthing from it. It got it got picked up by somebody else who rather unscrupulously made all the money. But um, yeah, it, it only just been invented. So it, 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 again, brand new technology. Yeah. Yeah. Air in tires. Air in tires. <laughs> um, and he also had a notebook stuffed with receipts, addresses, and advice, all written by Berliner himself. Yeah. You know, call this person. Yeah. Do this. Go there. You're and arriving in a new country. A new country. Book. Where there isn't a, bus- a business waiting for you, and you've got to invent a business, and these people might be useful to you. Yeah. And the other thing he's got in his notebook is pages and pages writing out exactly how you cut the record, how you do turn it. the disc, how much acid, what type, how long I guess you dry it for, all those kind of things. Yeah. yeah. It's fantastic. And in the back of the book, he had apparently he wrote down what he called fugitive ideas for just crazy people he'd meet who, who might record for him. Oh, fantastic. I mean, they were, yeah. they, they were, it was that kind of unplanned. Yeah. The first A&R list. First, exactly, the first A&R list. This is the sound of the hound. <laughs> for these podcasts, we're going to do a page on our soundofthehound.com website with some notes from each and hopefully some photographs but there are some photographs of Geisberg at 25 and he's a really he's a live wire you can see him a short man um, from his passport he's five foot three and a quarter so he's quite quite a short man full moustache absolutely full of energies he's usually mugging up to the camera him yeah. and his 
friend he, his friend follows him over William Sinclair Darby Sinclair Darby what and then name. they go off and have loads of adventures later on but but um, really playful guy but his passport says he is five foot three and a quarter low forehead dark brown eyes aquiline nose with moustache pointed chin black hair dark dark complexion oval face oval face oval face that's, I, that's slightly, I think Charlie Chaplin when I see him I know that's right yeah. that's an easy comparison to make isn't it yes a character and he loves posing in these early photographs of him, he's sort of, you know, hand in pocket, arm up. I think he likes his clothes as well. He was quite a natty dresser, yeah. I believe. And he's, he's, there's a few pictures of him with, and, mem, and, and records in his diary of meeting girls at this point. And he's clearly a flirt and a, and a sort of show off. I should imagine he's quite good fun. I think they're the best time. Yeah. I mean, they have, he arrived in London and they hit the Chocadero, didn't they? That which was, was a new, which I think was a new venue at the time. It was very new, yeah. And it, I've got some notes on this. So, so I'm, I'm completely wrong. The crossing didn't take two weeks. It took a week. A week. It was just under a week was the record. That's right. And they arrived in London August the 1st in 1898. And his instructions were to telegraph from Liverpool when, when starting out on their way down from Liverpool to London. They'd be telegraphing um, William Barry Owen. If nobody's there to meet you at the station, take a hack which must be a hackney carriage, carriage, I would think. Um, Have luggage put on top of hack and drive to Hotel Cecil, evenings, or 31 Maiden Lane, daytime. So Hotel Cecil was where William Barry Owen was um, Was staying. Staying and setting up this sort of office. And he, he, yeah, what he'd done is when he was, he did sort of um, presentations there to, to... potential investors oh, an that, investor roadshow yeah that yes. that's where he did it it was the poshest hotel in the strand it's it was then replaced by shell house oh, Do you know yes. about halfway that's down huge. the strand yes, yes, yes. yeah um so it got replaced in the probably the 30s i think and uh, and that's where trevor trevor williams was met 31 maiden lane was, that was the studio that yeah. was the studio where um they had some offices and that's where he would take his, his horn round and his all horn. of that equipment. I just imagine that this hack knee carriage clinking down London, having come all the way from Liverpool with these kind of vast, great, huge crates of equipment. Uh, you know, the arrival of something huge, which of course no one knew about at the time. Just fascinating, so exciting. I mean, how would you have felt if you were Fred then? Just mid 20s. Just the world's in front of you. And, and you've been sent across the Atlantic. Yes. He was actually sent with somebody. Do you, do you, do you remember Joe ah, Sanders? Joe Sanders, yeah. yes. So Joe is Berliner's nephew. Who, yes, who was sent to help with the very technical details, is that right? And, and to set up, he, he, he had two, first of all, he had to help Fred set up the studio in Maiden Lane, which, which was owned by the Gramophone Company. But secondly, he had to then move on to Hanover to set up um, a second company, Deutsche Gramophone, which would go on to be one of the most famous record, yes. particularly classical record companies in the world. And the reason that they, were, they, they, they wanted the A&R, the, re, the artist bit in the UK, and they wanted the pressing of records to be moved to Hanover because they didn't tr- the Americans didn't trust the British trade unions. So they wanted manufacturing over in, in Germany, wow, which was more reliable. Go. Yes. So, you know, you, and, and, and actually when you look at the history of... German in recorded Germany in recorded music. It's very technical based. The microphones we're using are German. Yeah, most of them are. Uh, yes. You know the, the, the Sennheiser. You know the um, the the they they have degrees in 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 um, technology and sound called Tonmeisters. We don't. We 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 find artists and record them. We, we're much <laughs> more at the sort of creative people end of it. 
and the Germans are much more at the technical end of it. And it probably started with that decision to split, to split manufacturing and, and A&R. Um, so Joe came over with him, and then Joe proceeded on Went to... Went on to, to Hanover. Uh, and at the end of the weekend that they spent setting up the studio in Maiden Lane, on the Sunday night, William Barrio takes Joe and Geisberg out for dinner. At the truck. At the truck. I'm not sure where the truck was. Well, I presume... It's where it, it always has been, you know, the end of Shaftesbury Avenue. It's Shaftesbury Avenue. It must of be the same, it it's, it's quite same. a grand, yes. Yeah, yeah. It's now the Rainforest Cafe. Or, so it's now got horrible... It's now, you, you know, know. The, 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 the floating table footballs. That's right, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, but at the time, my God, it must have been a... Oh, hang on, hang on. This is, so I did a bit of research on it. Yeah, so it was owned by Lyons. You know Lyons Corner Houses? Yes. Joseph Lyons & Co. So he, he opened all of these sort of popular restaurants, corner houses, for... for Less well-off people. The Trocadero was an attempt to attract people who, who who can't afford to eat at the Ritz or the Savoy, but offering them... But wanted the experience. Yeah, that, and, uh, and, uh, and it was the first place in London that offered you a fixed-price meal. Uh, you know, you got a, a, a starter, a main course, and a pudding for a fixed price. Two shillings and sixpence. Bargain. So it meant, And it also meant gentlemen in a rush could eat quickly before going to business meetings <laughs> or to the theatre. And very it proved good. very, very popular. But, uh, it, of course... The one thing that he's looking for is is artists, isn't he? Art, yeah, of course yeah. he is. You, yes, and and there's a band playing at the at the Trocadero. The, the, or, the in-house there. orchestra. Yeah, was it Le- Leopold Jacobs was conducting the the um, Trocadero Orchestra, and right. he claims that that's the first person he ever recorded uh, in his memoirs later on. How interesting, uh, because other names crop up as well, don't they? As the first. Uh, is the first people to be recorded. I wonder what... Uh, Cyril Lamont was was one name that keeps being mentioned, who was a waitress at Rules. Was she an Australian? She was an Australian. That's right, She yeah. was an Australian. Actually, um, do you want to mention Rules? Cause, well, well, let's, well, like the Trocadero. Yes. I mean, Rules, which is two doors down on Maiden Lane from, yeah. from, from the studio. So in the heart of Covent Garden, a little cobbled back street behind the Strand. Rules was... Well, it remains London's oldest restaurant, doesn't yeah. it? It's been open for ages. But Rules was a sort of... Um, it was almost like a green room for Fred, for the studio. Because yeah. he likes to drink, I think, did Fred. Oh, it's clear. Yes, he likes to drink. And so he, he, he'd pop into Rules and do some carousing and some, some, some gentle flirting, no doubt. And he would convince people there, either people he met or people that worked there, to nip next door and, uh, and record something. And that's how he found many of his early, I, I, early artists. Yeah, I, mean, I wonder if that's, that, it was a deliberate strategic decision to put it there because you had, you had rules in Covent Garden, you had the Opera House, yeah. and you had the West End nearby. Yeah. And rules was a place known for artists to come well, and have like a drink Lexus, afterwards. Absolutely. Yeah. You had, it, it was where... Where, where do you want to locate a recording studio? Yeah, Next absolutely. door to... But um, he met, and, and, and there was, a, there was a, a, an employee from rules used to um, drop stout around to Maiden Lane just to keep them all... Topped up and happy. And Cyril Lamont was, yeah, she was an Australian waitress. Uh, well, she was a singer. Sorry, I'm doing her. It's unfair. She was a singer who'd come over to try and launch a singing career in the UK, but had taken work as a waitress in rules to kind of tidy her over. And he met her, he met her there and, and got her to, to sing. He also met Bert Shepherd, we're told, in rules, who's this reasonably famous music hall star at the time. Um, and according to which, uh, according to certain accounts, was on the on the boat over from New York to London. Yeah, I, I, th- I, th- I think we should go. I think we should believe that he was on that. Should we believe that a, he was? It's a better story that that um, on the boat from uh, New York to, to Liverpool, he meets 
Bert. He meets Bert. Who, who, he had a particular song that he was, or two that he was famous for. Um, it called the, the Laughing Song. It's well, no, laugh- the Laughing Song. I think Fred, Fred, Fred introduced him to the Laughing ah. Song, taught him the Laughing Song. But Bert was an old minstrel man, as as Fred called him, and did lots of di- he did ballads and comic uh, skits and 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 patter songs and parodies and yodels. Apparently, yodeling was big yeah. back then. And I think on the on the boat, they obviously decided to have a drink or two. And Fred said, "Look, you must you must come and record." And Bert apparently. If he was on the boat now, now one account says he wasn't. Said yes, of course, and I don't think anything happened until Fred bumped into him in rules and um, and got him next door. It's, it, was, it was like a sort of musical press ganging rules, wasn't it? That they were yes, sort of it was, not it was, hit them over the head with a with a stick, but they pour a bit of booze down them and it's then like the Groucho Club in the nineties, yeah, wasn't it? You know, Spear them next door. Let's go, let's go in there. Yeah. And people did people did um, clog dancing in front of the recording hall, of course, because why not? They stood on a table and and and. Uh, and yeah, all these early recordings were just, yeah, they were kind of just mucking around, weren't they? Well, I, guess, I guess they're just, what do you do when you can record anything in the world and nothing's yet been recorded? Yes. You, yes. you try everything out. Yes. And, and, and I guess the other thing is that um, a lot of these musicians would have been frightened about the new technology, about what, yes. what it would, um, yeah. would it, would it, would it uh, make them less attractive to the stage if, if anyone could listen to them in their own home? Yeah. Um, there was one, um, I mean, there, there, there was a technical aspect to this as well, in that people who sang had to have very strong voices so that they'd made a, make a decent sound. So Fred, according to his diaries, picked Bert because he, he, he had a powerful tenor voice and clear diction, which meant that the results were actually more successful than, than a sort of slightly wispy voice. But there, yes, talking, talking of these musicians who didn't really know what they were getting into... There was one musical star who turned up in full full dress and makeup, not realizing that no one could see him. And as <laughs> like Fred the radio, said, people turning up in well, yes. dinner suits to the radio. And as Fred <laughs> said, he'd preempted TV by a few decades. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, so so the, the, these people turned up and just just belted out these songs. And the song that Fred, one of the songs that Fred taught 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 Bert was was the laughing song. We all know it. Yeah. I'm not going to do it, but I'm we, not all do it. It. we all know. We all. Exactly, grabbing the grabbing yeah. the uh, the lungs as you see, and Fred played it over and over until he got it. I mean, frankly, it's not the most complicated song, is it? Yeah. And they recorded it, and it became a hit. Or, or a, 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 a hits didn't exist then, did they? But it became a, 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 a well, a good selling record. Yeah. Well, there were no charts. There were no, no charts. charts really charts. until the fifties and sixties. It consolidated. Yeah. It, but it sold well. I think in his his diaries that he his memoirs that he wrote later in life, he he remembers. Um, you know, thirty years later, forty years later, hearing this in India, in and, India and, and China, bizarre, and, and, yeah, yeah. India, natives seated on their haunches around a gramophone, rocking with laughter. I mean, this is this is the first global hit, isn't it? It probably is. Yeah, I've never heard Indians laugh heartily. The record's still available there. This was 1940. He said this, right. and it, yeah, Africa, Japan, and China. It still sells. Yeah, amazing. From a from a piss up in rules yeah, to yeah. a. A bumping into somebody in a boat, piss up in rules, and come next door. But what I love about Fred, I wonder what he got paid for it. I, yeah, yeah. Because there were no concept of royalties in those days. No? You bought a recording, um, so hopefully Bert was slipped a pound or two. And he must have been. He must, he must have been, been paid yeah. something. But it sounds like fun, doesn't it? I mean, Fred's diaries about when he arrived in London. Yeah. I arrived in London at the tail end of a strawberry glut, <laughs> of which I took the fullest advantage. 
Oh, you can just fantastic. see him kind of yeah. on the cobbles of Covent Garden. Just, August, um, yeah. Oh, well, uh, I guess Covent Garden would, would be a uh, veg- fruit and vegetable market fruit and vegetable at that market. point. And a hotbed of prostitutes and dancers and supper clubs and casinos. And Do you know what I mean? It was yeah. it was a real kind Which, of... It's like in... What's that? My Fair Lady, you know, where they're... they're are they hiding from the rain and there's all the all the gentlemen and ladies in their posh garb and yes. then there's, there's the, 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 the girl trying to sell some matches and, and there's, you know, all life is there. All life yeah. is there. Crime ridden, I imagine, rather beautiful, but very kind of very seedy. And I, I you know, in a, in a, you know, we romanticise it now, but it, it probably wasn't the most uh, salubrious no. part of uh, of London. In fact, he wrote in his diaries, didn't he, that um, William Barrio, and after he took him to the Trocadero, and that kind of opening, we assume the opening night yeah, yeah, or yeah. the opening week, he was in seventh heaven. This is a quote from his diary: He was in seventh heaven, seventh heaven of delight at our astonishment at the luxury of the Trocadero and the wickedness. All around us on that Sabbath Eve. I mean, it's just what a fantastic way. That, that, was, so that is that's just before they start recording. Just before, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm 25. I'm in London. There's a lot of strawberries around, <laughs> and the rest. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm, I mean, I'm just about to invent the music industry. <laughs> How fantastic! I, th- I think that's I think that's that's a good place to finish that's because a good place to... it, it, it's we've got him here. This is the sound of the hound. One thing I think we possibly need to spend a bit of time on is talking about how these recordings were actually made. Yes, what this room felt like and looked like, and yeah, because you think of recording studios now, and you think of mixing desks, and you know, digital, digital, flashing lights, yes, LED, yes, and booths, booths. There's no, no, <laughs> no, no booths. So yeah, should we 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 have in front of us two photographs of this first recording studio in Maiden Lane. Should we try and describe what it was like? Yes, and I think the first thing to remember is it's a room. <laughs> it's a room. It's not a. It's not purpose built. It's just a room, um, quite a big one. Yeah, with gas mantles hanging from the ceiling. Yeah, it looks looks about I don't know thirty or thirty odd feet by twenty five feet. Yeah, decent size. They've cleared out. Practically all of the furniture except a table. And there's a fireplace in there. And a fireplace. And then in the middle of it, what have they got here? Do you remember those Heath Robinson drawings? Uh, do you remember them growing up? Of those? Yeah. It, it's a bit like that. There's a lot of a lot of contraptions, I'd call it, in the yeah. in the room. The centerpiece, it's kind of a it's a it's a raised table with a with a large recording horn protruding from it. Yeah. On a on what on what looks like a stand, like a music stand, to, yeah. to kind of bear the weight of the of the horn's thicker end. There's somebody standing next to it. That that looks like that's, that's not Fred. That is might it? be Fred standing behind it. And and bearing in mind, Fred was quite a short guy, five foot three. Five three. So that looks like like you know, a good four four foot in the air. The the the, the, um, the table reaches and the horn comes off that table. Yes. You've then got by the side of that the accompanist. A company, a company I can't is the person playing the piano on the, sitting at an upright piano, which, which is, is raised, which is raised on a on a on a wheeled platform, yeah, so that it can be moved around the room. I presume the point being that because there was no way of electronically modifying the volume of the piano, if you yeah. wanted it softer, you move it away. You move it away. I mean, that's yeah, absolutely because bound to be that. Yeah. And, and and then the the singer would stand at the big end of the at the open end of the horn, let's yep. say, close to it, close to it, and as clearly as possible, sing. 
Yes, and they liked it loud, clear, loud, slightly deep, clear, deep. And now this is the, this is going to be the unscientific t- technical bit, but the sound would then go down the horn as as sound waves. Yeah, and they would make a. There was a, at the end of the horn, there, at the thin end, there was a some kind of diaphragm. Rubber was it too early for rubber? No, rubber, rubber, rubber was available at that time, which yeah. would have wobbled in time with the sound vibrations. Yep. And on the end of the wobbling diaphragm was a was a thick cutting stylus yep. that was placed at the beginning of the recording at the outer end of a rotating disc. Yes, I think that sounds logical yeah. to me. Yeah. And as the disc the the disc had a, a layer a thin layer of beeswax. Yep. on it and benzene benzene and beeswax and so the disc made little indentations sorry the, the stylus made indentations as the disc as, went round and as round the disc and went round and round and round yeah. and then the idea was when this when the song ended that's when the acid you dip you take the, the zinc plate off with the the wax yeah and you dip it in a bath of acid yeah can we see that in the picture because i know they were somewhere in this room is a tub of acid into which the, the the zinc master was 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 was, was just well. There's chemicals was, there. Hey, yes. To one side, well, uh, underneath the table, there's a there's a sort of platform. There's a table, and there's which is four foot high, and then probably about two feet high. There's a platform, and there's definitely bottles of chemicals. Yes, that's a chemical bottle that we can see. But 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 I wonder if you know it might be that that exercise. I'm imagining it emitted some sort fumes. of fumes. Fumes. Yeah. They may have pushed that into a broom cupboard or the room next door. Could well have been. Um, and then the acid, the, the acid then made permanent the scratches that had been made in the wax yes. in the surface beneath. And that was your master. That was your master. That was yeah, your master. Yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And then, and then from that, you take the stamp. They and take then the stamp, and then you would. And then you stamp. I mean, yeah, talk you'd... talk about. I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it? No electricity used in this process. It was no. all manual, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. No microphones. No microphones. No mixing desk. Oh, no mixing desk. No, no, it's nothing. It's simply sound waves coming down, being scratched it's, onto a piece of metal. It's scratchy it, sound waves. And, um, and a fire to keep the wax, because you don't want the wax to, to harden too much. So the fire to keep it warm and therefore impressionable. That's what's amazing, is how did they keep all of these things at the right temperature? Yeah. And it, it must have just been you know, fing- wet finger in the air. It feels about right. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose they they became skilled at uh, noticing when it didn't work. When it didn't work, yeah. but also th- there was this trend, I believe, for so we mentioned the piano and the, and the fact that distance was the only way to modulate the sound. If a singer hit a high note that was too loud, they pull them back. They put a bit of muslin around their waist and heave them back, <laughs> so that the the high notes weren't were, were the same volume as the, as, as as the middle notes. Yeah. This, is, this is this is the days. Um, when the artists were the least important people yes. in the room, <laughs> because they they had to stand exactly where they were told and not do, not be too loud and not be too quiet. Yeah, the most important person in the road was the technical person. Absolutely, that, that actually managed Absolutely. to capture this. And this they couldn't mess thing. up. If you messed up halfway through, that was it. The zinc, the the master was wasted, and they were expensive. They must have been. Oh, it must have been very expensive. All this. No, fl- what did you call it in, in in the record industry? The flower and. Uh, the budget for uh, naughty things. Oh, candles and flowers. No candles and flowers yeah. for this lot. No, they had wax. They had it was. <laughs> it really was. It was wax. 
Yeah, no, it's 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 a fascinating. Again, we we we'll put these pictures up onto the um, the website of soundofthehound.com. And what's that? Is that some kind of one marimba? Of, one of them. Yeah, it looks like it's it's a sort of wooden frame, about six foot tall, with looks like metal mm. um, pipes pipes that, that that will be hit with something percussiony. I think. Yeah. I mean, t- more rudimentary. You couldn't really imagine, could you? No. It is a piano, a horn, diaphragm, a turntable, and a needle that scratches yeah. wax discs. Yeah, and a whole That's lot of it. imagination. And and, yeah. and if you wanted to capture more than one person or more than one instrument, they had to crowd around that one horn. Yeah. That was it. No pressure. I mean, look, imagine just... Also, how weird does that look? Yeah. You've had a beer at Rules, and, and yeah. you walk into that room, and you're like, what the what? You've never encountered one of these things before, yeah. And you're right, that it is Heath Robinson. It, it looks like it's it's been made by a madman. Yeah, well, it has. Um, what is this thing here? There's lots of little horns. Now, I don't know. That's it. What, what, it it's, like a, it's like a, a table. It's like a, it's like a flower of horns, isn't yeah. it? Of smaller horns. I have no idea what that is. No, and it, wheels. Ah, wheels that, that looks like an early... Yeah. Gramophone slash phonograph, which ah, some of which had device. yes, I think it might yeah. be the playback device. Yeah. Some yeah. of which had many horns yeah. to make it louder. Probably. Without of yeah, yeah. Okay, well, look for these photos on the website and then uh, see what what you think of them. This is the sound of the hound. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sound of the Hound. If you'd like to see the show notes, which contain links to some of the things we've been talking about in this episode, please go to thesoundofthehound.com. Select podcasts when you're there, and you'll find a page of notes for this episode. Sound of the Hound is a podcast from the EMI Archive Trust. Many of the recordings and artefacts we talk about in this series of podcasts are housed by the Trust. If you'd like to know more about the EMI Archive Trust, go to emiarchivetrust.org. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please take the time to leave us a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. That would be much appreciated. Thank you.